Raise your hand if you've ever done anything that you're ashamed of. Keep them up. Keep them up. Look around the room. Everybody's hand is up. Okay? That's important. Now keep them up if you have done something that you've been ashamed of since you've become a Christian. Okay, look around. Keep them up if you have done something that you've been ashamed of that if somebody else in this room found out, you'd be even more embarrassed. This is almost, almost a universal experience. In today's segment of Tough Love, we're going to talk about shame. We're going to talk about what it is, why it's so powerful, and how we can beat it. Now, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, you're not alone. I'm going to lean heavily on the work of Dr. Brene Brown. She's one of the foremost uh, specialists when it comes to shame today. And she tells us that when she began to study shame, the very first article that she came across said, those who have decided to study shame, it has been the death of their academic career. The reason, she discovered, was because nobody likes to talk about it. Nobody likes to talk about their shame, but today we're going to talk about it. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because shame thrives on secrecy. Shame thrives on secrecy. And so we're going to frame our conversation today uh, talking about the lives of two of Jesus' disciples, some of their actions uh, that, that made them feel shame. So we're going to start out talking about Judas. Judas, in Matthew chapter 27... Uh, We're going to start in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, I'll put the text up here on the wall. Uh, Judas was one of the original disciples. He was handpicked by Jesus. He followed Jesus for a series of months, if not several years. Uh, He ended up becoming the treasurer of the group. He was responsible for the purse. He would pay the bills. He would give to the poor. He was their treasurer. As you probably know, he was also the one who ended up eventually betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He turned turned Jesus over to the religious leaders. Now, there's lots of theories as to why Judas did what he did. He seems to be a genuinely conflicted man. Depending on which account we read or which scholar we listen to, uh, he may have done it for greed. He wanted some more money. He may have done it because he became disappointed or disillusioned with Jesus' ministry. Some scholars suggest that he even did it in an attempt to be helpful, to maybe force Jesus' hand to become the kind of political military messiah that they were hoping for. Whatever the motive was, whatever the reason he did what he did, we know that he ended up betraying Jesus. He turned him over to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. This was an event that eventually led to Jesus' arrest, his trial, his torture, and eventually his execution. No matter how we look at it, this was a terrible decision. This was a terrible decision. And like many of us who have made terrible decisions, Judas woke up the next morning with lots of regret. Here's how Matthew tells the story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. Matthew says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Have you ever woken up and been seized with remorse over something you had done the day or the night before? I think many of us probably have. 
You know, believe it or not, feeling bad about bad decisions is not a bad thing. Feeling bad about bad decisions is not a bad thing. Um, There's a difference, we've learned, between guilt and shame. Listen to this quote from Dr. Brene Brown. Based on my research and the research of other shame researchers, I believe there is a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. In other words, what she's saying is that there's a good aspect to guilt. Feeling guilty about what we've done is really a good thing because it, it, it pricks our conscience and that psychological discomfort makes us want to do better. So, so guilt can be a good thing. Guilt can, can spur us. It can let us know that what we've done violated our conscience and it can inspire us to do better so that we don't feel that psychological discomfort. But she says shame is different. She goes on. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Unworthy of love or belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Summarizing this, she she says it this way. She says, the difference between guilt and shame is the difference between I did bad and I am bad. You see the difference? Guilt is, my actions were bad. I did something that was bad. Shame goes much, much, much deeper. And it's not just my actions, but it's it's who I am. It's the core of my being. It's I am bad. So so there's a difference between guilt and shame. I did bad, and I am bad. And it's it's this second one. It's this belief that we are bad, this belief that we're unworthy of love, that we're unworthy of acceptance, that Brene Brown says is lethal. That's the term she uses, lethal. It's deadly. Shame can be deadly. Um, As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, writing nearly 2,000 years before Brene Brown, said something very, very similar in a letter that he wrote to some Christians living in the city of Corinth. This is what Paul says. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings what? Death. So Paul, 2,000 years ago, before we have all this research on shame, is telling us that there's a difference between different kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow, which spurs us on to make a change and leaves no regret. And then there's worldly sorrow, which leads to death. This is the difference between Brene Brown's guilt and shame. Guilt is I did bad. It's a feeling of psychological discomfort that makes us want to do better. Shame is this turning inward, this belief that we aren't worthy of love aren't worthy of connection, aren't worthy of acceptance, and shame is deadly. You see, Judas had a, was right to feel bad about what he did, right? Judas, he did something bad. Betraying Jesus was not a good action. He was right to feel bad. As a matter of fact, people who feel bad about their actions, that means that their conscience is probably working correctly. The ones we need to be worried about are not the ones who feel guilty about doing something bad. It's the ones who don't feel anything at all when they do something bad. So the fact that Judas was remorseful indicates that perhaps his his conscience was actually working correctly. And as we continue on the story, we're going to see that he actually tried to make things right, or at least to make himself feel better. Here's what Matthew says. Uh, After he was seized with remorse, he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. 
In other words, Judas recognized the, the badness of his actions, and he went in an attempt to make it right. And he confessed his sin, and he tried to make amends. But the problem is, he confessed to the wrong people. He confessed to the very people who had conspired to capture and kill Jesus. And Matthew tells us how they respond. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. In other words, Judas opened himself up. He admitted his shortcoming and his sin. It seems, actually, the, the same word that Matthew uses for feels, uh, was seized with remorse is used in other places to indicate repentance. There's two different words that are translated repentance, um, at least in the New Testament, and this is one of them. And so scholars go back and forth on, did Judas really repent? But it, it appears that Judas was, was on the path towards repentance. He was recognizing the gravity of his mistakes. He was trying to make things right, but he confessed to the wrong people. And instead of affirming him, instead of showing empathy, instead of offering forgiveness, this group of strangers who didn't know Jesus, Judas, who didn't care about Judas, they shut him down. Now, I'm not an expert in psychology, But if I were to guess, I would say that this is the moment that Judas' guilt began to turn into shame. That what may have started out as godly sorrow became worldly sorrow. And Matthew tells us what happens next. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. You see, it appears that Judas' decision to commit suicide was a result of his shame. Shame that was exasperated by the fact that the people that he opened up to shut him down. And so believing that he had no place to go, believing that there was nowhere he could turn, believing that he was unworthy of love, acceptance, or forgiveness, he took his own life. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Judas' sin was unforgivable? Do you believe that he had just gone so far that he was beyond redemption? Because I don't think so. I don't think that Judas was beyond redemption. I don't think that he was beyond forgiveness, but I think that he believed the lie that he was. You see, I think if Judas had waited just a couple more days... If he had seen what happened next, if he had experienced the resurrected Christ, I believe that Jesus would have extended forgiveness to him. But he believed the lie that he was unworthy, and he took his own life. This leads me to the second person that I want to talk about this morning, and that's Peter. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 22. Again, I'll put the text on the screen. We're going to look at Peter, because Peter also made a bad decision. As we've been studying the book of Luke these past number of months, we've been following along in in this series, Tough Love. We're looking at the final hours of Jesus' life as he's betrayed by his friends, as he's abandoned by his friends. And and, uh, just hours prior to this event, uh, Peter had looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere, even unto death. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, no, you won't. You're going to deny that you even know me, and you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows in the morning. Peter says, oh, Jesus, Jesus, I, never, I would never deny you. Then J- the crowds come. Jesus is, arre- is arrested. And this is how the story goes, according to Luke. Seizing Jesus, his captors led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. 
And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelights. She looked closely and she said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. And in that moment, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. This man who had poured into his life, who had called him out, who had taught him and trained him and loved him, Peter denied even knowing him. And this wasn't the, first, this wasn't the only time he'd do it. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, said Peter. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Sure sounds a lot like Peter was seized with remorse, doesn't it? Weeping bitterly over his bad decisions. He felt bad for his actions and for good reason. He had denied even knowing this one who, was, who had poured into him, who had loved him, who had cared for him, who he had promised to follow even unto death, and he had denied even knowing him. If you've ever been abandoned or denied by a friend, you have a small feeling of what Jesus must have felt in that moment, in his hour of deepest need. But Peter's guilt didn't turn into deadly shame the way that Judas's did. Was it because Peter's action, Peter's denial wasn't as bad as Judas's betrayal? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. One of the things that I think made a huge difference was who these people chose to open up to. Judas went back and he opened himself up to these people who didn't know him, who didn't care for him, who didn't consider him any different. But according to the story, Peter went back to his community, to a group of people who knew him, flaws and all, who loved him, flaws and all, who were willing to forgive him even though he had made mistakes. And I think doing this bought Peter a little bit of time. I think doing this by opening himself up to people who knew him and who loved him and were willing to accept him, maybe even saved his life, bought him a couple of, couple of days. Fast forward a couple of days. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' response to Peter. It doesn't appear that Judas lived long enough to experience this, but Peter did. And when Jesus came back from the dead a few days later, how did he respond to Peter? Let me ask you a question. How would you have responded to Peter? How would you have responded to somebody who denied even knowing you in your hour of deepest need? Would you cut them out of your life forever? Would you say, you weren't with me when I needed you most, and so you can't be with me now? Jesus would have been justified to do this, wouldn't he? If Jesus would have done this, if he would have said, hey, you denied me in my hour of deepest need, I'm going to deny you now, we would, we would understand. We would say that Jesus was justified to do that. But is that what Jesus, 
Is that what Jesus did? No. He forgave him. He loved him. He accepted him. He welcomed him back. And he put him in charge of the entire operation. What do you think that that undeserved grace, what do you think that that undeserved mercy did in Peter's heart? You know, I think if Jesus had responded with unforgiveness, if Jesus had responded by turning Peter away, I think we might see Peter making the same choice that Judas did. But it was Jesus' undeserved grace and mercy and forgiveness that very well may have saved Peter's life. Now, just to, to see the impact of this, look at the rest of Peter's life. After this moment, Peter spent the rest of his life with purpose and with passion, following and serving and preaching Jesus, and he never denied Jesus again. As a matter of fact, he ended up dying for his faith, his allegiance to Jesus. This undeserved grace, this undeserved mercy that Peter experienced from the person that he denied changed his life and set his life on a new trajectory. Jesus gave him a second chance, and it made all the difference in the world. So there's a couple, couple things I want us to take away from this lesson. The first is this. Don't believe shame's lie. Don't believe shame's lie. For those of you who feel like you've made one mistake too bad, or one mistake too many, who think that that thing that you did is just not forgivable, who maybe have turned your back on God and walked away for a period of time and think that he would never, ever welcome you back. That's a lie. Because he will. Peter denied Jesus in the flesh in his hour of deepest need and Jesus welcomed him back. There's nothing that you can do that's too far, that's too much to receive God's forgiveness. Don't believe the lie that you're unworthy of love, that you're unworthy of forgiveness, that you're unworthy of acceptance, because the cross proves otherwise. The the cross proves that no matter what your sin may be, that God believes that you are of insurpassable worth, that he loves you this much. Don't let your shame keep you from experiencing forgiveness. You are not defined by your mistakes. Your worth is not measured by your bad decisions. And you are not alone. According to Dr. Brown, shame needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. She says that if you take a little bit of shame and you put it in a Petri dish and you add secrecy and silence and judgment, it'll grow exponentially. The antidote, she says, is empathy. She says if you take that same shame and you put it in a Petri dish and you douse it with empathy, shame can't survive. Shame can't survive empathy. It can't survive being spoken. She says this, she says, shame depends on me buying into the belief that I'm alone. 
And as we saw at the beginning of the service when everybody raised their hand, you are not alone. It's a lie. If you believe that your sin or your shame makes you unworthy or unacceptable or all alone, it's not true. It's a lie. Don't buy into it. Shame needs you to buy into it. It needs the silence and the secrecy. She provides three steps to overcoming shame, and here they are. Number one, talk to yourself like someone you love. When I make a mistake, I tend to kick myself and say, Dad, Thomas, you idiot, you did it again. But when Madison makes a mistake, I don't talk to her that way. At least not usually. Sometimes I lose my temper because I'm human. Right? Talk to yourself like someone you love. Talk to yourself like it was someone else in this room who had admitted something to you and you were telling them that it's okay and it's going to be okay. Talk to yourself like someone you love. Reach out to someone you trust and who is trustworthy. I think this was Judas's mistake. He reached out to the wrong person. It's bad not to reach out at all, and it's bad to reach out to the wrong people. Reach out to someone you trust and tell your story. Don't let shame live in secrecy. Don't let it live in silence. That's how it grows. I've often told people who have done terrible things in the past that once they can learn to tell their story in public, it means they own it. And when you own your story, it no longer owns you. When you own your story, it no longer owns you. But it takes time to get there. And it takes a safe place to learn to do that, which leads me to the second takeaway, and that's this. Don't let shame survive in the church. Don't let shame survive in the church. The church should be the safest place around. This should be a place where shame comes and dies because there's so much empathy here. This should be a place where there's no judgment because we've all been there. We all raised our hand. We've all done something that we're ashamed of. This should be the place where we're free to admit that and we're free to offer forgiveness and acceptance and love no matter what we've done. Unfortunately, that's not always been the case. Unfortunately, the church has at times been the place where people receive the most judgment. As a matter of fact, if we're honest... Sometimes we put on a fake face when we come here, don't we? We dress a little differently than we normally do. We act a little differently than we normally do. We're afraid to show our real self because we're afraid of letting down the people in this room. That ought not to be, my friends. This ought to be the place where we can be the most vulnerable and the most open, where we can confess our deepest sins one to another and experience the forgiveness. As people who have been forgiven, this ought to be a place where we can offer that for one another. Let shame not survive the church. Let this be a place where there's no judgment, but where we love each other out of whatever sin we may be in. No, this is why I I so firmly believe that every person should be a part of a small group. Because when we're gathered here on Sunday mornings and we're sitting in rows, it's wonderful. I love what we do here on Sunday mornings, and it's really important. But in and of itself, it's not enough. We've got to get out of rows and into a circle with a smaller group, a small group of people that we can trust. As I tell our groups when we meet during the week, that that what we share in group stays in group. It's a safe place. And we've had some really neat breakthroughs in the past few weeks in some of our group meetings. People willing to admit things that they haven't been able to share other places. Healing as people have, have, have shared personal aspects of their story. It's why I believe that every person needs to be in a small group. And if you're not, 
I'd encourage you to get with me afterwards or fill out one of these cards and let us know that you want to be involved in one. Because we need a place where we can be known. We need a place where there's no secrecy or silence or judgment, where shame comes to die. So that leads me to this bottom line. Jesus died for shame, too. We believe that he died for our sins. But he also died for our shame. Your shame, as well as your sin, was nailed to the cross of Jesus. You don't need to live with it anymore. God loves you right where you are. And he doesn't love you less because of what you've done. And you can't earn his love by being better. God loves you, and he forgives you, and he accepts you. And the cross demonstrates that in God's eyes, you are of insurpassable worth. And you belong here. And this is a place where you can experience love and grace and forgiveness. And so if you feel alone, you're not alone here. And if you feel like there's nobody who understands, if you feel like you're all alone, there's nothing that you can do, if you are in Judas's position, if your guilt has turned into shame, do not let that go unspoken. Find me or Jenny or someone else that you trust and let us help you. And let us walk with you through the pain and out of the shame and into healing and forgiveness. Shame can't survive empathy. And it can't survive being spoken. So don't let it live in silence. And don't let it live in secrecy. Because you're not alone. You have people here who love you. You have a God who loves you enough to send his own son to pay the price for our sin and our shame. So as individuals, get help. As a church, let us us be a place where this is demonstrated. Let this be a place where second chances and third chances can happen. Let not shame survive this place. Let's pray. God, we've all done things. Things that we just don't want anyone else to know about. Things that we are embarrassed about. Things that we are ashamed of. It's a universal condition. And we don't like to talk about it. But Father, you so love the world that you gave your only son. That whoever places their trust in him should not have to live in shame. Should not have to experience death. But can have eternal life. Free from sin and free from the shame that it brings. So, Father, for those of us who are struggling with shame, who are struggling with decisions that we've made, help us to see your wide-open arms of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Help us to accept it. Give us the courage, God, to reach out and share it. And, Father, help us as a church to be a place where shame comes to die. Help us to be a place where We're so characterized by love and empathy that we're free to be be our vulnerable selves. Let this be a place, let us be a group of people where we don't have to put on masks, where we don't have to put on a show, where we don't have to pretend that we're something that we're not. God, we know that you love us where we are and that you won't lead us, that you won't leave us here, but you'll lead us into newness of life. Let us be a people, let this be a place where that happens. In Jesus' name. Amen.